Hey, raise your hand this morning if you have or have ever had a crazy neighbor. Would you just raise your hand? Some of you have two hands up. I don't know what that means. So, so it makes life interesting, does it not? Uh, so we have a person in our neighborhood who's probably a little difficult to get along with. They live next door to Tasha's aunt and uncle, who their backyard butts up to our backyard. So they're behind us and over one. And so there have been several times throughout the uh, time in living there. It's been a little difficult to get along with them. They've got some interesting stories. But uh, Tasha's uncle has the most meticulous yard you've ever seen like in your life. And so uh, around his utility box, the utility box in the front kind of splits both yards, he decided he was going to landscape around his utility box. But in order to extend an olive branch to this neighbor that's been a little bit difficult, he decided I'm going to buy enough landscaping to do my side and their side totally for free just as an olive branch to my neighbor. And so he did, and as always, it looked incredible, absolutely meticulous. However, the next morning, it didn't look quite as good. And the reason is because in the middle of the night, those neighbors got up, dug up everything he planted, and threw them in the middle of his driveway. Didn't look quite as good in the middle of his driveway. And so, but here's the deal uh, it could always be worse. In Fort McCoy, Florida, true story, 92 year old Helen Staudinger was a lonely widow who became smitten with 53 year old Dwight Bettner. The two met in 2010 when Bettner moved in next door, and shortly after moved in, his elderly neighbor had a problem with her stove, and so he offered to drive her into town. They bought a part for their stove, and on the way back, uh, she said, you know what, let's stop and eat lunch, and, and I'll buy you lunch. As an act of kind gesture to his neighbor and her hospitality, he gave her a kiss on the cheek. However, uh, to her, it meant a little more than an innocent, friendly kiss. And so uh, often she became uh, over at his house, she'd be in inviting him over for dinner, offering to cook dinner for him. And when she found out, though, that he had a girlfriend, she became so enraged that she tried to strangle the woman. This woman's 92. In March 2011, things escalated further when Staudinger was visiting Bettner. As she was leaving, he refused to kiss her, which angered her. So after engaging in a verbal altercation, she stormed off. She retrieved a gun to her house came back and fired several shots into his living room. Thankfully, he was not hit, and the reality is this, that when the police came over, she said, uh, he had nothing to do with him denying me a kiss. I was angry because he owed me so much money from all these dinners I had bought him over the years. So remember, no matter how crazy your neighbor is, it could always be worse. And the second piece of advice, be very careful when flirting with an elderly person, all right? Could be some mixed signals. Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 23. We're going to start a new series for a few weeks this morning called The Art of Neighboring. And the next few weeks, we're going to look at this idea that when Jesus said to love our neighbors, that just by chance, he may have actually meant included in that our actual neighbors that live right around us. And so what does it look like to live as a gospel neighbor in the neighborhood, in the context God has placed us in? Uh, last week, we talked about this idea of going urgently. And we talked about that when we go urgently, we should go to the neighbors and to, our, to the nations. And so we define neighbors here at our church as anyone in a 30-minute radius of our church and neighbors or nations as anyone outside of that. And here's what I think. I think when it comes to going to the nations, we're doing a great job. We're sending between our youth and adult attendance, we're sending about 15% of our people out on a short-term mission trip every single year. Last several years, we've literally sent hundreds of people all over the world to share Christ with people. But I think this, I think there's lots of room for us to grow, me personally, everybody in the room, to live. And what does it look like to go urgently to the neighbors right around us? Several years ago, I can't remember if this was a conference I was at or, or an article that I was reading, uh, but the person writing or speaking asked this question, and when they asked this question, it gripped me and it's haunted me. 
ever since I, I heard this question. And here's the question they asked. They said, if your church closed tomorrow, would the neighbors around you grieve or would they even notice? If our church closed tomorrow, would our neighbors grieve or would they even notice? Because we've been gospel neighbors, that we've been loving them in Christ's name, modeling the love of Christ, or would they even notice? Now, I hope that the people who come here every week and would say, hey, well, I would be sad and I would be sad too. But the reality is, what about the people around us? What about the neighbors that God has called us to live out our faith in front of them and to love them sacrificially? So in this first message in the series, The Art of Neighboring, I just want to look at several passages. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 22 and kind of walk through what does it look like to actually live out this call for gospel neighboring. And when we walk through this and this whole series, and particularly today, here's what I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to challenge you with this idea of gospel neighboring. I don't want you to think of the church corporately. I want you to think of you and your actual neighbors because you and I are the church. And here's the deal. If we talk about loving our neighbors corporately and theoretically, uh, then if we're not intentional, we'll never actually love our real neighbors practically. And so we're going to look here in Matthew chapter 22. Uh, we're going to look at verses 34 through 40. Jesus is in this exchange. There's, they're trying to trap him, trying to get him pinned pin into a corner. And he kind of tells a story and, and just you know, blows them out of the water as he always did. So Matthew chapter 22, we're going to start this morning in verses 34 and look down through verse 40. It says, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, and that's not like an attorney like we think of. It's more of like a legal scribe, okay? So uh, a lawyer asked him a question testing him and saying, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Now, remember, there were 613 tenets of the Mosaic law. All right, so he's saying, out of all 613, which one do you think is the best? All right, and Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And so as we get this looking through this uh, idea of in the New Testament, what does it look like to live as a gospel neighbor, to live intentionally in the community that God has placed me in? I'm just going to walk you through three principles from the scripture of what I think gospel neighboring actually looks like. And the first one I want you to see in this passage is simply this, is that gospel neighboring requires seeking justice on their behalf. Seeking justice on their behalf behalf. Now, if you're here and you're, you're not a Christian, or, or maybe you are, but you're not a Bible scholar, listen, I would argue this, there's probably a high chance that you even know that, yeah, I don't know a lot about the Bible, but I know that somewhere it talks about loving your neighbor. I've heard that somewhere. I know, well, this is the passage. This is the place that Jesus says that, but here's what's interesting. This is not an original statement with Jesus. Matter of fact, neither statement he makes when he says, here's the greatest commandment, here's the second one, neither one of those are original with Jesus. Let me tell you why. Jesus was actually, in both of those, uh, quoting the Old Testament. Uh, when he said to love your, the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, he's actually quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. And so he's referencing back in the Old Testament. He says, hey, remember this one? That's number one. And then when he quotes the second one, to love your neighbor as yourself, he's actually quoting the Old Testament there as well. He's quoting Leviticus chapter 19. And all throughout, when you look at Leviticus chapter 19, what you see is it is a call to seek justice on behalf of those around me and to execute gospel neighboring on their behalf. Now, this is a long passage. Jesus draws out one statement from it. So we're going to put this passage up on the screen, and I'm not going to read through it, but I'm going to walk through each and show you how each tenet in this passage is a call to pursue justice on behalf of my neighbor. All right, so Leviticus chapter 19. 
Here's the first place it talks about seeking justice as a way of loving my neighbor as myself. Uh, Verses 9 and 10 says, live generously towards the poor and the foreigner. Uh, Verse 11, uh, do not steal from anyone. Uh, Verse uh, 13, do not, uh, I'm sorry, verse 11, don't be deceptive in dealing with other people. Verse 13, don't oppress, rob, or exploit the poor uh, by paying unfair wages. Verse 14, do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. Verse 15, do not be partial to the poor or show favor to the great, but judge honestly. Verse 16, don't commit financial fraud against your neighbor. Verse 17, don't hate your brother. Verse 18, do not seek revenge or hold a grudge, but extend forgiveness. So so here's the deal. When Jesus said, hey, listen, love your neighbor as yourself, that was a quote from the Old Testament, specifically from Leviticus chapter 19. And Leviticus chapter 19, in verses 9 all through verse 19, is a command on how to pursue justice on behalf of your neighbor. So if you and I are going to love our neighbor as ourselves, as the second commandment that Jesus gave here, guess what? It will involve pursuing justice on behalf of my neighbor. So in, in Jesus' culture, in verse Leviticus 19, that's what it looked like. But here's the question. What does that look like in our modern, current culture that we find ourselves uh, engaged in. And so I just want to ask some very practical questions because here's the deal. You can think about that and say, amen, that's a great idea. That's a good statement. I totally agree with that. But what does it practically look like? So, so let me walk you through just three questions. And whatever the answer is in your context to these three questions, that's what it looks like to seek justice on behalf of your neighbor as a part of Jesus' command to love your neighbor as yourself. So here's the first question. Who are the people that experience injustice around me? And that answer is probably different for different people in the room, depending on where you live and what context you find yourself in, who's in your circle of influence. Who are the people consistently experiencing injustice around me? Here's the second question we have to work through. Who are the marginalized or forgotten people? Now, uh, if you watch the Super Bowl, you know that God's favor is on the eagles. Can I get an amen? All right. And so, uh, so the incredible thing is you saw them give incredible testimonies. Not all of them. Many of them uh, just share their faith in Christ. It was a great witness for Christ. I'm so grateful for that. But, but sometimes if we're not careful, what we think is this. If we could just get a certain celebrity or athlete to endorse Christ, then all of a sudden uh, the gospel would spread like wildfire. Here's what's interesting. When you look at Jesus and his method of ministry in the gospels, he wasn't going after influential people. Jesus was pursuing people on the margins of society. He was taking the lowest of the low, radically transforming them, and looking at them and saying, listen, you were nothing, and now you're a trophy of my grace. And so you and I should be looking for people who are marginalized or forgotten. So, so in your circle of influence, who are those people that God has called you to extend gospel neighboring to? And the third question is this, who are the people who are susceptible to being taken advantage of? In your circle of influence... Who are the people that you would look at and say that those people are often taken advantage of? And so as a result of that, if I'm going to live out this command of Jesus to love my neighbor as myself, knowing now that's a reference to Leviticus 19, then I have to take serious my gospel responsibility to pursue justice on those who are taken advantage of, those who are exploited. So you can fill in the blank, whatever it looks like. But if you'll walk through those three questions and say, Lord, what would you have me to do? That's gospel neighboring. That's gospel neighboring. And so, so the reality is simply this, is that whatever type of justice I would want for myself in any of those situations, I should pursue that on behalf of my neighbor under the banner of Jesus. Say, hey, listen, love your neighbor as yourself. Just like you'd want justice for yourself, pursue that on behalf of those around you who may be in justice. Now, let me give you a little uh, cultural exegesis. 
if you're here and you're a millennial, this is going to resonate with you. You know why? Because it's a part of your cultural value. Now, if you're here and you're my age, I'll be 42 uh, tomorrow, all right? I know how in the world someone looks so handsome at 42. I don't know, gift of God, I don't know. But if you're my age or older, you know what the temptation's gonna be? Those people don't need, uh, they don't need food and blankets. They just need Jesus, give them the gospel, all that social stuff, just cast it to that's, that's, that's not, listen, just give them the gospel. If you're listening, say amen. It's not either or, it's both and. It's not either or, it's both and. Now let me also clear up some confusion. Social justice is not the gospel. The purpose of the gospel is not to make the world around us a better place. Listen, the purpose of the gospel is to reconcile sinners to God. That's the purpose of the gospel. And so the reality is the the gospel is not uh, about uh, drilling wells and buying goats for for hungry people. That's not the gospel, all right? Uh, James McDonald had a quote uh, captured a few weeks ago. He said this, if social concern is leading the way to evangelism, instead of gospel proclamation leading to care for hurting people, then gospel compromise will be your legacy. Listen, there's lots of churches doing that very thing, doing nice things for the neighbors, all the while soft-selling the gospel, downplaying the gospel, keeping quiet about the gospel. And so social justice is not the gospel. And if we rally all of our resources to fix the ills of society around us, but never mention Jesus in the process. Listen, we're not a church. We're a government agency. We're a civic organization. We're just do-gooders. That's all that we are. But even though social justice is not the gospel, hear me this morning, those who have been transformed by the power of the gospel should pursue justice on those who have been injustice. It is not the gospel, but it should reflect the lives of those. Why? Because Jesus said to love your neighbor as yourself. And when he said that, he's quoting Leviticus 19, and Leviticus 19 is an entire dialogue on pursuing justice on behalf of those who may be oppressed or marginalized or have been uh, uh, exploited in all kinds of ways. And so what does it look like to gospel neighbor? It means pursuing justice on behalf of those who've experienced injustice as the overflow of the gospel's work in our lives. Now, the second thing I want you to see from the New Testament is this. Gospel neighboring also requires reallocating our resources to meet their needs. Reallocating resources uh, to meet the needs of, of those around me. Now, when I thought through this, I thought, you know, I'm prepping this week. I thought, I am not going to uh, reference Luke chapter 10. That's so cliche, Good Samaritan, all those kind of things. And I'm just not going to, you know, I just, I just in my mind this week when I'm prepping, I'm like, I'm not going to do that, all right? So listen to these verses from Luke chapter 10, uh, verses 34 35, right? Here's the deal. So I'm like, I'm not doing that. That's so cliche. But here's what I I could not get over this fact. This is the gold standard. This is Jesus himself saying, hey, listen, if you want to love your neighbor, this is what it looks like. And so I could not once again improve on Jesus's words. So I'm going back to a familiar passage because this is the gold standard right here. So listen to verses 34 and 35 in Luke chapter 10. And here's what it says, verse 34. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. And then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. Verse 35 says, the next day he handed the innkeeper two silver coins telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time that I'm here. 
Retired pastor and author Tim Keller simply defines gospel neighboring as sacrificially meeting the needs of those around him. That's exactly what this man did in Luke chapter 10. A denarii was basically a day's wages. So this guy said, hey, listen, here's two days worth of wages. Hopefully this will be enough. If it's not enough, open up a line of credit and just let it go. Whatever his needs are, I'm willing to reallocate my resources. And when I come back through town, then guess what? Uh, I'll settle up the bill. Now, here's the deal. If you ran a hotel, let me ask you a question. And a guy said, hey, listen, here's, here's money for two nights stay. And let this guy stay as long as he wants. And when I come back through town, I'll settle his account. Would you let him stay? Not past the two days, right? I know how that story turns out. And so you know what that tells me from this, this parable, this, this culture here? This, this was a common occurrence. This is a person looking out. It's a hypothetical person. This is a person looking out, realizing this was their lifestyle. And so now, does this mean this? Does this a call to give away everything I have on behalf of my neighbors? No. He doesn't say, love your neighbor instead of yourself. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. What this is, is they call to say, just like you and I would reallocate our resources to meet our own needs, then we should be looking around and say, hey, who are the people around us who are under-resourced so that I can reallocate my resources to meet their needs because I want to love them just as, not instead of, just as I would love myself. Just like I would do that for myself, I'm willing to do that for that person. Why? Because that's what gospel neighboring looks like. And so the reality is this, it's going to cost us something in gospel neighboring. It may cost you some of your money. It may cost you some of your time. It may cost you a lot of emotional energy. It may cost you to give away love and compassion that you may feel like you're running thin on. But here's the deal. Listen, when we sign up to follow Christ, guess what? We sign up to live sacrificially, not on behalf of ourselves, on behalf of others for his glory. And so gospel neighboring requires me to seek justice on behalf of those exploited. It requires me to reallocate my resources just like I would do for myself. I should do for them. Love your neighbor as yourself. Here's the third thing I want you to see from Luke chapter 10 as well is this, is that gospel neighboring requires viewing everyone as made in the image of God. Everyone made in the image of God. Now, can we just be honest this morning? Can we be honest about the fact that we have an easier time loving our neighbors who look like us, act like us, and vote like us? And we knew that Jesus knew that about that everyone's that way. And so Jesus, in this passage, uh, he's telling this, this guy who's a, a Jewish scribe, he's trying to pin Jesus in with kind of a riddle, and Jesus knew that a Jew only loved other Jews. You know why? Because he said, we're God's chosen people. There's no one like us. God's favor's on us. We're a special group of people. We're this special line. God's promise, all these things. And so Jewish people became incredibly prejudiced against anyone who was not Jewish. And so when Jesus starts spinning this story, he says, hey, listen. He says, by the way, in this story, um, you're the victim, Jewish person, and the hero is a Samaritan. Now, for us, it's like, what's the big deal? Listen, for him, it was a huge deal. It was a huge deal. And so when Jesus, the reason Jesus did that is because he knew it would expose this Jewish man's hatred and his refusal to love anyone who did not look, behave, and think like he did. And we're the same way. We're the same way. And so uh, the, the Jews despised Samaritans. Just absolutely despise them. Look at verse 33 uh, in, in uh, Luke chapter 10. Let me just read it to you. It says this. Then a despised Samaritan came along. And when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. 
Now, who would we fill in the blank with? Somebody say, then a Republican came along. Oh, right? Then a Democrat came along. Then a person of a different race came along. Or a sexual orientation came along. Or a Muslim came along. Or any of this, listen, just fill in the blank there, whatever. And so he says a despised Samaritan came along. Why were they so despised? Well, that what happened when the uh, Jewish people were in captivity, uh, that, that there was a Samaritan people, they began to have children, they began to intermarry, and so they said, we, we don't like you, we're supposed to be this chosen, chosen people, we're this pure lineage, you know, we trace our lineage all the way back, and, and it's this pure line of God's chosen people, and here we were in captivity, hanging out, living next to Samarians, and you start dating our daughters, and then you got married, and now you've produced this whole generation of people that are not pure Jews. And so they looked at them, they looked at purebred Jews, and they said, you're not like us. And so we don't like you. On top of that, uh, the Jews, after they returned to Babylon, they began rebuilding their temple. And so when Nehemiah was engaged in rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, the Samaritans actively opposed the Jewish people in that project. Now, Samaritan also became a place of refugee uh, for Jewish criminals. And so once they got there, it was like a sanctuary city, like you thought that was a new thing, right? Not a new thing. And so once they got there, like, hey, you're safe here, you're totally fine. The Jews go, oh, I can't stand you. You're harboring all these people. We're trying to bring to justice. I can't stand you. You married our daughters. You opposed us in building the wall. And on top of all of that, the Samaritans did not look at the Old Testament as being inspired. They thought the first five books, the law, the Pentateuch, the Torah, whatever you want to call that, the first five books of the Bible, they said, hey, those are good. The rest of them, they're all just fairy tales. And so from a Jewish person's perspective there was no one worse on the earth according to John chapter 8 and in John chapter 9 here's what it said the Jews tried to have no dealings whatsoever with Samaritans now let me ask you a question is there any group of people that if they were your actual neighbors you would have no dealings with them they didn't look like you, they didn't behave like you, and they didn't vote like you. Tosh and I know a story of a person who professed to be a Christian. They were involved in ministry. They were living in their house, neighborhood. A couple moved in next door. I found out later that this couple was involved in a same-sex relationship. And so instead of loving on them, sharing the love of Christ, they put their house up for sale and moved away. You know what you should have done instead of putting for a sales sign? You should have opened your door as wide as you could and invited people over for dinner. What group of people around you that if they lived around you, you would have no dealings with? Because that's exactly what's going on here in the Good Samaritan. It was a guy coming alongside a Jewish person being held by a Samaritan. And in John chapter 4 said they had no dealings with them. Nothing. If you need a cup of sugar, you did without. If your ox was in a ditch, you left it there before you'd ask a Samaritan's help. Tim Keller in his book, Generous Justice, writes the following. He said, we instinctively tend to limit for whom we exert ourselves. We do it for people like us and for people whom we like. Jesus will have none of that. By depicting a Samaritan helping a Jew, Jesus could not have found a more forceful way to say that anyone at all in need, regardless of race, politics, class, and religion, is your neighbor. Not everyone is your brother or sister in faith, but everyone is your neighbor, and we must love your neighbor. Listen, the 
The mark of a life changed by the gospel is not loving people who are easy to love or loving people who agree with us. It's loving people who openly oppose us. It's blessing those who persecute us. That's the life of a mark. Uh, life changed by the gospel is loving people that sometimes are hard to love. That's what it looks like to love. And so uh, what's that start with? It believes this, that everyone is made the image of God. Every person walking around, if they don't look like you, if they don't vote like you, if they don't behave like you, if they don't agree on your cultural values or your biblical values, those kind of things, listen, it's that every single person is made in the image of God. They may not all be reconciled to God, but they're made in the image of God, regardless if they look like you or I. That's the foundation of all of that. But our natural bent, if we're honest, is to love people who look like us and act like us and vote like us. Now... Let me help you with that and help myself too. When you think of the main characters in the parable of the Good Samaritan, who do you identify with? Some of you say, oh, I'm so busy and I might be like that person, the Levi of the priest who's walking along and they see that person and I'm just too busy to even stop and get involved and I just, oh, if I'm honest, I'm, I might be that person. Maybe you're here and you're a very compassionate person. You say, you know what, not to sound self-righteous, but honestly, I probably would be, I, I probably been the good Samaritan that stopped. I probably would have helped that person. I probably, I may have, I've done it before. I've gotten taken advantage of. I probably identified. So, so here's the deal. In the parable of the good Samaritan, all of us identify with someone in that story. Here's my concern, though. My concern is we don't identify with the right person. Because here's the deal. In the parable of the good Samaritan, Every person in this room, me included, we're not the priest, we're not Levite, we're not the Good Samaritan. We're the person dead on the side of the road, desperately in need of mercy. We're the person so beaten down and ravaged by sin that we could not help ourselves. And so Jesus came along and found us on the side of the road and paid a debt he did not owe to the innkeeper, represented the father, and said, hey, listen, here's a line of credit. Even for future things, I'll take care of those as well. And in finding us who could not help ourselves, we received his mercy. You and I, we're not the priest and we're not the Levite and we're not the Good Samaritan. You and I are the person dead on the side of the road, ravaged by sin, desperately in need of mercy to come along, and he did, and his name is Jesus. That's who we are in this story. When Jesus found us, you could not help yourself, you could not fix it, and he gave you mercy. And once you understand that, the great mercy you and I have been given in Christ, then you'll be a conduit of mercy to people around you in need. Listen to, listen to the scripture on the mercy we've received. Romans chapter 11 verse 30 says this. For, you as, for as you once were disobedient to God, you have now obtained mercy. 1 Peter chapter 2 says this. But you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praise of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light, who once were not a people but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Ephesians 2, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, even when we were on the side of the road, totally beaten down, totally ravaged, could not fix it, could not help ourselves, in that point, made us alive with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Listen, this passage 
is a picture of the gospel. And in the gospel, you and I are not the heroes. Uh, we're the rescued. And once you understand that Jesus extended mercy and rescued you from a helpless, beaten down, sin-ravaged condition, and once that gets a hold of you on the inside, then guess what? You'll be looking around to people and extending mercy on the outside to anyone around you that has need. And when they ask you, why in the world would you extend this kind of compassion to me? Why would you reallocate your resources? Why would you seek justice on my behalf? You can say with integrity, because I've experienced mercy as well. And so the only thing I can do is extend it to other people. So how do you do this? How do you do this? So each week in this series, I'm going to walk us through some truths. I'm going to give some practical ways to get, to get a handle on all of this. Okay, so, so let me give you two things this morning. This first one, it's not going to sound practical, but if you don't embrace it, you're, not, you're never going to get to the second one, all right? So, so here's the first thing. How do you do this? Number one, by fulfilling the first commandment first. Go back to Matthew chapter 22. What's he say? What's the first commandment? Verse 36, teacher, which is the greatest commandment. Verse 36, verse 37, Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your mind. Now, why, why, is, why, is, why do I have to do that before I do the second one? Because here's why. That until we pursue God with all of our heart, soul, and mind, then God will never satisfy the affections of our heart. And if God does not satisfy the affections of my heart, then I cannot give away time, money, resources, love, energy, emotions, whatever that is. I can't give anything away because until God satisfies the affections of my heart, I'm not a distributor, I'm a collector. I'm collecting all kinds of things that I think will satisfy the affections of my heart. And if I'm collecting those things, I can't give them away to people in need around me. If things are going to satisfy my heart, I can't give them away because I need them. But when God satisfies my heart and satisfies the affections of my heart, my heart is full at that point. And when my heart is full, I live like this and say, Lord, I've got all these other things. I don't need them because I have you. And you alone satisfy the affections of my heart. And so, Lord, I'm going to live this way. And any time you move me to seek justice, to reallocate resources, to do whatever it takes to be a gospel neighbor, I can do that and not even lose sleep at night. Why? Because these things don't satisfy me. You alone, Lord, satisfy me. And so, how do you get to the second one, love your neighbors yourself? You've got to pursue the first one, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And when he satisfies the affections of your heart, guess what? You'll live the rest of your life like this. Say, Lord, I've got you. I don't need all this other stuff. So if you want me to give this away to love my neighbors myself, that's fine. My satisfaction is not in these things. But if you don't live that way, guess what? You'll not be a distributor. You'll be a collector. Okay? So that's the first thing. Here's the second thing. If you're going to put legs in this, here's the second thing. This is really deep, and so I'm going to say it slowly so, so you don't miss it in the translation. All right? So here it is. Do something. Do something. So on staff, this is a little bit embarrassing, but I'll, I'll tell you this uh, true, true dynamic of our staff. Uh, one of the things here uh, is that I'm not allowed to write anything for distribution. And so the reason is because when I write, like I write a full manuscript every week. And so if you ever want to copy the sermon, we'll email you the full manuscript, everything I taught. Uh, and so when I write, I write for orality. I write like for conversation. I write for, for public speaking. And so that's not the same as writing for technical for publication. 
And so whenever someone says, hey, we need, you, we need an idea, we need you to do a blurb, we need to do something like this, is actually what happens. I write it out just like I would say it conversationally, and then I give it to someone else. They go, okay, this is a grammatical disaster, and so let me fix this so we can put this in the worship folder or some other place. That's, ex- that's what happens. Like, and, and listen, who, kn- who among us knew that get her done was not proper English? I didn't know that. Did you know that? Right? So I'm not a technical grammarian. But even a person like me knows this, that love is a verb. Love does not dwell in the land of good intentions. Love does not dwell when you see someone in need, a neighbor around you who's being exploited or needs resources. Love doesn't dwell in the land of I'll pray for you or that's a real shame. Love does something. Love is a verb. You can agree with everything I've said today and walk out of here and do nothing with it. But here's what James chapter 2 says this. Suppose you see a brother or sister has no food or clothing. You say, goodbye and have a good day. Stay warm and eat well. In other words, I'll pray for you. But then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it's dead and useless. Verse 18. Now, someone may argue some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. This is what's our verse for this month. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good works. Why? So they can glorify your Father in heaven. The good works precede the glorification of the Father in front of those who are watching. And if we profess to be Christ's followers but don't love our neighbors as ourselves, we are hypocrites at best and we are dangerous at worst. It was just after 3 a.m., when Kitty Genovese pulled her red Fiat into the parking lot near her apartment. She got out of the car and locked it and began the hundred-foot journey to her front door. She never made it. Spotting a man standing in her path, she veered away, heading for the police call box. She never made it. The man grabbed her and stabbed her repeatedly. Her frantic screams for help pierced the night. Lights began to go on in her neighbor's apartments. One of the neighbors yelled out, let her go. As she yelled out, he stabbed me, help me. Upon hearing her neighbor yell, the man walked away. She stumbled towards her apartment and screamed, I'm dying. The attacker drove off. But he came back. And he found the woman sprawled in the front door of an apartment just a few doors from where she lived. And this time his wounds were fatal. Detectives investigating the crime discovered that potentially up to 38 different people had witnessed the crime at some level, yet no one came to her aid. They found out later that one person actually made a phone call to the police, but only after he first called and talked it over with a friend. And when they asked him, they said, why did you wait? Here's what he said, I I didn't want to get involved. That came as no surprise to the confessed killer, Winston Mosley, who said this. I knew the neighbors wouldn't do anything. They never do. Let me go back to the question I asked you at the beginning. About the church and our neighbors, let me make it personal. If you put a for sale sign in your yard this afternoon, would your neighbors grieve? 
Would the people you go to school with be upset? Or as your truck pulled away, would they even notice? Would they be sad because they knew that a person lived there who loved them, prayed for them, served them, cared about their eternity and their kids and their grandkids would no longer be living near them? You see, what about when Jesus said to love your neighbors? What about if included in that were your actual neighbors? And when we intentionally live out this idea of gospel neighboring, then if a for sale sign ever went up in any of our yards, our neighbors should say something like this, I'm not sure how I feel about Jesus, but I know the people who live there, I know they loved him, and I know they love me. And I'm going to miss those people because our neighborhood was a better place, a little brighter place, because they lived in it. Jesus said this, love your neighbor as yourself. Would you bow your heads this morning? With your head bowed this morning, let me just ask you the most important question, which is this. Have you ever experienced the mercy of God in salvation? The reality is this, is that every person in this room is like the man on the side of the road in the Good Samaritan. We've been beaten down by sin. We can't help ourselves. We can't fix the situation. The only thing we can do is cry out for God's mercy and salvation. And the good news is God has made that mercy available in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so if you're here this morning and you want to receive the mercy of salvation, the Bible says this, that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so if you're here this morning and God's drawing you to himself, you feel like God is talking to you right now, listen, would you just receive Christ by faith? If you'll pray and ask Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins, if you believe that he died on the cross, buried and rose the third day, and you would trust him and him alone for salvation, you can be saved today from your sins. You can receive the mercy of Jesus in salvation. And so if you're here and you've never done that or you're not sure, would you do that right now? Would you just pray and say, Jesus, I need your mercy. I need forgiveness of my sins. I want to follow you. Would you pray that right now? For those of you who have received the mercy of salvation, let me ask you a question. If you put a for sale sign in your yard today, would your neighbors grieve? Or would they even notice after you left? And so I'm going to challenge you this morning. Would you pray and would you tell the Lord these things? Would you just say, first off, Lord, I want to be a gospel neighbor. You put me in this neighborhood, in this community, in this school district, on this street, as a missionary in disguise. I want to be a gospel neighbor. And would you pray and say, Lord, help me to seek justice on behalf of those who have experienced injustice. Would you pray and say, Lord, help me be willing to reallocate my resources to those around me who are under-resourced as a gospel neighbor? And would you pray and say this? Would you say, Lord, help me to view everyone 
regardless of race, orientation, gender, political affiliation, class, help me to view everyone as someone made in the image of God. And lastly, would you pray this, Lord, as I go about my week this week and all the busyness, remind me, remind me of the great mercy I've received in Jesus. God, help me to slow down enough to realize there are people on the side of the road all around me every single day. Because I've received mercy, God, I want to be a vehicle of your mercy. Would you pray that right now? Father, I pray this morning that this would not be a sermon that we say amen to and it fires us up. We make commitments we don't keep. Lord, I pray this sermon would just move us one degree, two degrees towards being a gospel neighbor. And God, I pray that we would take serious the call of Jesus on our lives to love our neighbors ourselves. And God, included in that, we would include our actual neighbors. And so, Lord, as those who have received mercy, help us this week to extend mercy to those around us that we encounter on the side of the road. And Lord, when they ask as the source of our compassion, may we say boldly, because I too have received mercy. And his name is Jesus. Whatever impact we have, Lord, we lay that glory already at your feet. Solely you working through us, we lay that at your feet, Lord. We're thankful that you don't need us, but you use us. Help us to be faithful as gospel neighbors. Help us to be faithful in loving our neighbor as ourselves. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.